Welcome to the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast. I'm Dr. Rita Jablonski, a nurse practitioner and researcher with over 30 years of experience working with people who have dementia and their family and formal carers. I explain why behaviors happen, what the behaviors mean, and how to best handle them. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. Welcome to the redo of episode one, Meet the Dementias, which I originally produced in July 2021. This was my first ever podcast, and per my daughter Sarah, was rough. But I had to start somewhere. I am re-recording this podcast and also adding an intro about who I am and why I started this podcast and why I will continue making these podcasts. So a disclaimer. I have a unique sense of humor, and I do use profanity. In my podcasts, you will get a lot of great information, but delivered with a smattering of good-natured humor and snark and the occasional F-bomb. This is me, and this is who I am. Like the intro mentions, I'm a nurse practitioner and researcher. I started my career in 1982 as a nursing assistant in a local nursing home. To be totally honest, I only applied to nursing school because I was the oldest of five kids and I watched my single mom struggle. I come from a blue collar family where college is really Votech on steroids. In my world, you go to college to become something, a nurse, a teacher, a priest, a lawyer, a doctor. However, I loved music growing up and I played multiple instruments, sang in the church choir, and even did a little theater. I so wanted to be an artist and to major in music. My mother, a pragmatist, sat me down one day and said, Rita, you have some talent, but you don't have enough to succeed in the music world. Go into something practical like nursing. You will always have a job. My grandmother also had some recommendations. She steered me toward going to mortician school for the same reason. Everybody dies. Great to be raised by a family of wide-eyed optimists. Anyway, at the time, I preferred living people, so I chose nursing school. Which brings me back to the nursing home. I was accepted into Holy Family College, which is now Holy Family University in Northeast Philly, and at the time, it had a great nursing program, and I think it still does. More importantly, in 1982, it was affordable. I could commute and live at home. I also needed a job with a steady income so, and flexibility so I could pay tuition and work around my classes. None of the hospitals were hiring aides in 1982. I went the nursing home route applied to St. Joseph's Nursing Home on a Friday and literally started orientation the following Monday. I discovered, to my utter surprise, that I loved working with older adults and I was especially good at figuring out dementia behaviors and more importantly, how to handle those behaviors so I wouldn't get the shit kicked out of me, which was the norm in 1982 and it's is still the norm in many assisted livings and nursing homes. Back then, like now, if you were to go to the charge nurse and complain 
that this resident was being violent or this resident was hitting you, the charge nurse essentially looked at you like you were a fucking idiot and told you to deal with it. Quote, it comes with the job, unquote. I heard that daily for the four years I worked as a nursing assistant. Or the charge nurse gave the poor soul a whopping dose of an antipsychotic. Haloperidol, or Haldol, was the go-to drug back then. And we now know it's not a good idea to give it to people with dementia, but this was the early 80s. And we really didn't know a whole lot about dementia. So people with dementia were often drugged and physically restrained. I will say I learned a lot in the nursing home. I also learned to really evaluate what the so-called experts were saying about dementia behaviors. In the early 1980s, it was considered best practice and common practice to reorient people with dementia. So if someone said, I want to go home and see my mother, you would respond, Mrs. Smith, it's 1982. You are at St. Joseph's Manor. It's Thursday, September 8th, and your mother's been dead since, like, 1940. Guess what? Reorientation only resulted in upsetting people and pissing them off and making the behaviors worse. So I would sit in class and be taught this is how you react to people with dementia, I would go into work and think, this doesn't fucking work. And I started learning my own techniques. So when I worked night shift and someone woke up at two o'clock in the morning and wanted to get on the train to go to work, I learned to say things like, well, the train isn't leaving yet. It's two o'clock in the morning. I will wake you and bring you your breakfast, which was the truth. I would be doing that at 6.30 in the morning. And when I do, I'll help you. And the person would look at me and say, thank you, and roll over and go to sleep. And that's when I started realizing what I was being taught and what worked were two different things. Even though I was only a nursing assistant and I was about to graduate as a new nurse, I vowed that someday I was going to go back and get a lot more education and get a PhD so that I could become a researcher who had, gee, common sense and clinical grounding to improve dementia care. And it's funny because I would say that to my fellow nursing students and they would look at me and laugh and say, how about you work on getting your first job? Fast forward 35 years from 1982 to now, during those three and a half decades, actually almost four, because it's 2021. So yeah, I'll be, it'll be 40 years in 2022 that I've been working with older adults with dementia. Shit, I'm getting old. <laughs> anyway, during those almost four decades, I went back to school for a master's degree, a nurse practitioner certificate, a PhD, and finally a postdoc. I learned about brain biochemistry and neuroanatomy so that I finally understood why the strategies I used 40 years ago as a nursing assistant worked. 
In fact, I even published a series of papers in the like late 2000s, 2010, 11, 12, and there. And those papers discussed the neurobiology of threat perception, which means people with dementia have brain changes that cause them to mistake caring actions for assaults. And you're going to hear more about that in future podcasts. I also applied for and received a shit ton of grant money from the feds. Thank you, taxpayers and various foundations to conduct research where I developed entire toolkits of approaches that prevented and managed what I was calling care-resistant behavior. I was looking at mouth care in nursing homes, which is a big trigger for refusal behavior. And I have a whole research or program of research rather that explored how to prevent and manage care-resistant behavior within the context of mouth care. While I was teaching full-time and conducting research, I was still pulling shifts part-time in nursing homes and hospitals, working with people living with dementia. So I never abandoned my clinical practice while I engaged in teaching and research. In 2014, two pivotal events happened, which caused me to start writing a blog, Make Dementia Your Bitch, in 2017. I started working as a nurse practitioner in a memory disorders clinic, where I began adapting my knowledge around care-resistant behavior and mouth care to other refusal behaviors faced by family caregivers. To this day, I am the go-to person in the practice, which has exponentially grown for behaviors and strategies. I also, in 2014, became a caregiver for a family member with dementia. I moved her into my home and that was a game changer. I remember one super god-awful stressful weekend where all I wanted to do was... I mean, send her out, put a pillow over her head, put a pillow over my head. It it was just horrific. I walked into the clinic that Monday, and I remember saying to my colleagues, if I'm struggling and I'm considered an expert in this field, how the hell do other families do it? Being a family member caring for someone with dementia made me a much better, more humble, and more understanding clinician. In fact, one of my friends calls me a triple threat, and I asked her, what in the world is a triple threat? And she explained that in the theater world, a triple threat is someone who can expertly sing, dance, and act. Most people can do one really well and maybe two, Rare people can do all three. In the dementia world, I'm a triple threat. I bring decades of hands-on clinical experience, research knowledge, and the lived experience of having walked in the shoes of a caregiver. I bring all of this cool stuff to my blogs and podcasts. I love to teach and share what I know. This is my gift, 
And I feel so blessed and fucking awesome to share it with all of you. So, Sarah, if you're listening, thank you. We had dinner last Friday, and she announced that she's been listening to my podcast, which I was pretty shocked. And she remarked about how much better my podcasts were becoming. Apparently, episode one, quote, sucked ass, unquote. So, Sarah, thank you for your feedback. And here goes the new and improved episode one. In today's podcast, I'm going to introduce you to all of the dementias. But the first thing I want to do is clarify the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's. And the reason why I say that is because so many times in my professional life, I have people say things like, my mom has dementia, thank God she doesn't have Alzheimer's. Let's back this up a bit. Dementia is an overall or umbrella term like saying dog. I happen to have a dog, a pandemic puppy. Her name is Amira and she's gorgeous. And just like we have different types of dog, we have dogs that may be labs or dogs that may be German shepherds. There are different types of dementia. Alzheimer's, vascular dementia, Lewy body dementia, or dementia with Lewy bodies, Parkinson's disease dementia, and frontotemporal dementia. So there's different types of dementia. Again, going back to my dog, Amira seems to be maybe several breeds. And it is not uncommon for people when they age to have one or more dementias. And I will get to that in a little bit. So to recap, dementia is an all-purpose word that refers to a loss of cognitive abilities that are chronic, meaning longstanding, and progressive, meaning the loss gets worse over time. Now, let me talk about cognitive ability. Everybody thinks cognitive ability refers to memory. Where did I put my keys? Oh, I put my keys over here. That's only one small piece. Cognitive abilities mean a lot more than simply recall, and there are different types of cognition. The usual type of memory that everyone is familiar with is called declarative memory, which is a recall of learned facts. For example, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, or September 11th is coming up and the 20th anniversary of the bombing of and the destruction of the World Trade Center. That's declarative memory. That's recall of facts and information. There's also attention and concentration. Often people miss things because they're not paying attention or they're not concentrating. Have you ever been in a meeting or in class and you were somewhat bored, so you began to daydream? I'm guilty with Zoom meetings of turning the camera off and muting the microphone 
and then working on something else because I'm attending this meeting, but I'm not really invested in the meeting. So my attention and concentration is on something else. And next thing I know, I hear my name and I'm panicked because I have no idea what is going on and I'm being asked a question. I have no idea what the question is about. And by the way, in the future, if you're in a Zoom meeting and your attention and concentration wander and you were called on the spot, a really good response is, I'm sorry, you cut out. Could you please say that again? And if I'm in a meeting and you hear me say that, you know, my attention and concentration wandered off. In addition to attention and concentration, cognitive function also involves what's called executive functions. These are functions that are important for judgment and for making good decisions, for maintaining motivation, and doing activities in the correct sequence. The part of the brain behind the forehead controls executive function. This is the part of the brain that tells me to eat veggies and to go to bed early so that I'm ready for work tomorrow. But let's say I get up to get ready for work and I would really prefer to binge watch The Walking Dead instead of going to work and having to be an adult. My frontal lobe is the part of the brain that says, nope, get your ass out the door and go work. When we are talking about dementia, we are talking not just recall and memory, but also that ability to focus attention and concentration, to assemble tax paper payers, executive function, and to do all the steps to get us to out the door to go to work, which is also part of executive function with sequencing. In addition, there are also emotional aspects, like expressing sympathy and empathy and recognizing people's facial expressions. Those are also important abilities that encompass the social aspect of cognition. In addition to all of these components, you also have what's called procedural memory, which is, I touched on this a second ago, but it's really how to do things how to do things automatically, without thinking. For example, if my iPhone dings and there's a text, I don't have to exert a lot of cognitive effort to open up the iPhone and respond to the text. I know how to use my tablet. I usually can recall all of my passwords to access my email and my financial accounts. All of the different parts of the brain that control these cognitive components synchronize and work together via neural networks. With dementia, parts of the brain shrink or go offline, which disrupts communication and synchrony of these neural networks. That can that that will explain why people, when the dementia gets really really bad. They have trouble doing things like even walking and, and feeding themselves. 
at least 6 million people in the U.S. right now have a dementia diagnosis. So now that I've talked about the brain a little bit, I can talk about the different types of dementia. The first, Alzheimer's disease. That is the chronic, gradual, progressive loss of cognitive abilities. You can have language problems where people are unable to come up with the word, and we call that word searching. You can also have problems doing things. You can have problems with procedural memory, and procedural memory, like I briefly said, but I want to say a little more about that, procedural memory is built up over time. I learned to do something when I'm three months old, six months old, a year, and so forth. And then I do that activity every single day. Tying a shoe, feeding oneself, dressing oneself. That's, and these are examples of procedural memories. And with Alzheimer's, people tend to move backwards in time and they will lose the ability to do whatever they learned last. That's why you start to see problems with the TV remote or with the latest smartphone. But getting, oh, also, you also see something called agnosia, which is the inability to recognize or identify common objects. I will talk about losing abilities and, and issues with procedural memory in upcoming podcasts, and I will provide ways that caregivers can slow this loss down. But before that, I also want to mention some confusion about different types of Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's can occur uh, between the ages of 30 and 60, and this is called early onset Alzheimer's. It is often genetically linked. So if someone presents with symptoms and signs of Alzheimer's before age 60, you may hear the term early onset. You also hear the term late onset for people who exhibit Alzheimer's signs and symptoms after the age of 65. And these are just general cutoffs. But sometimes people will confuse mild with early stage dementia, and that is not correct. I handle in the next podcast the staging of dementia, mild, moderate, and severe. And they mean very different things than early and late onset. But I've even heard healthcare professionals inaccurately use the term early onset when they were really staging the dementia and calling it mild. So if the healthcare professionals are confused, it's no wonder everybody else is too. Well, that wraps up Alzheimer's. Next is vascular dementia. Vascular dementia occurs from long-standing heart disease and strokes. Sometimes strokes are symptomatic and very obvious events. The person will then develop memory problems immediately after the stroke. 
the memory problems sometimes improve, but may not quite get to baseline. In many people, high blood pressure causes silent strokes, meaning there are problems with blood flow getting to parts of the brain and neurons are dying, but the damage isn't so extensive that you see one-sided paralysis or you see significant evidence of a stroke. What happens over time is all of these damaged areas start to connect to each other and then you see the memory loss and the loss of cognitive abilities. Vascular dementia can look a lot like Alzheimer's dementia, but you will have periods of plateaus or stability, and then you will have a stair-step decline. The third one I want to talk about is frontotemporal dementia or the FTD spectrum. Frontotemporal dementia involves the shrinkage of both the frontal lobe or lobes, which are located behind the forehead, and the temporal lobes, which are on the side of the on the side of the head at the temples, temporal lobes. FTD affects people between the ages of 35 to 75, but the majority of people are affected between the ages of 45 to 64. And there are different subtypes of FTD. The one that people seem to be the most aware of is the behavioral variant one. There are also variants where people have problems producing words or producing words that make sense. Problems making words is called aphasia. Because FTD affects younger people, people at the peak of their careers, the costs associated with FTD are twice the cost associated with Alzheimer's disease. There are also fewer resources for younger people with dementia, which makes the caregiving situation even more difficult. Alzheimer's disease and frontotemporal dementia involve problems with the protein called tau and also with beta amyloid plaques. You see the beta amyloid in Alzheimer's disease predominantly, but you see tau problems in both Alzheimer's and frontotemporal. There's other dementias that involve other proteins. The one I want to talk about now is Parkinson's disease dementia and dementia with Lewy bodies or Lewy body dementia. Even though I'm treating both of these as two separate dementias, the current thinking is they're both two sides of the same coin because both dementias are caused by a misbehaved protein called alpha-synuclein. Alpha-synuclein lives in the nucleus of neurons, and for reasons not totally understood, it begins to fold over on itself, killing the neuron. These abnormal cells were discovered by a scientist named Louis and are called Louis bodies, hence the name Louis body dementia. Louis bodies do not belong in the brain. People with Parkinson's disease and dementia with Louis bodies both have these abnormal proteins, these Louis bodies, but the difference is where 
the abnormal cells are first located. In Parkinson's disease, the Lewy bodies first appear in areas of the brain called the substantia nigra, which is really important for smooth control of movement. The Lewy bodies mess up the ability to produce dopamine. Dopamine is a neurochemical needed for smooth, coordinated movement. When there is not enough dopamine, all hell breaks loose, and there is a disconnect between the brain's ability to communicate with the arms and the legs and other parts of the body to result in controlled, consistent movement. People with Parkinson's disease prevent first with movement problems, tremors, stiffness, problems with walking, problems with balance, even problems with speaking. Over time, some will develop memory problems. Once the memory problem happens, these people are considered to have Parkinson's disease dementia. I recently encountered a research article that asserted that 80% of people with Parkinson's disease, if they live long enough, will develop dementia. I'm not saying that to freak out people with Parkinson's disease. But I think there's a lot of care partners of people with Parkinson's disease who are caught off guard when the dementia shows up. They're surprised and didn't know that this was something that could not happen and they are not prepared. I wonder if clinicians aren't doing a great job of saying that, hey, this is a possibility with your Parkinson's disease. I've read that Parkinson's disease dementia occurs on average about 15 to 20 years after the diagnosis. There's various epidemiological studies that show risk for Parkinson's disease dementia after specific intervals of the disease, but usually the older you are when it's diagnosed, and the longer you have Parkinson's disease, generally speaking, the more likelihood you have a risk for Parkinson's disease dementia. Now, the flip side of the coin is Lewy body dementia or dementia with Lewy bodies. Both terms are correct. People start out with memory problems first and then have movement problems down the road. Some experts and books say at least a year after the memory problems, sometimes we see it happening almost at the same time. And the other issue with Lewy body dementia is the confusional aspect of it tends to get better and then get worse and then get better again. And you will hear families say that they think the person is faking because some days they are totally with the program and other days they don't seem to know where they are. Interestingly, one of the diagnostic criteria for Lewy body dementia is the fluctuation aspect of it. And the current thinking is because the attention and the concentration are fluctuating which are two important abilities to create and maintain memories. So if the attention and concentration is not working at full capacity, the person is not going to be able to form 
a memory and then access it. Another key aspect one sees with Lewy body dementia is people acting out their dreams. Now, I don't mean the occasional, I wake up screaming because I've had a nightmare about something scary. I'm talking about people who will sit up on the side of the bed, pick up an object, and manipulate it. I saw a sleep study where the individual sat on the side of the bed and picked up a pen and held it in their fingers like a cigarette. And they actually brought it to their lips as if they were inhaling. And then they took the pen and placed it on the edge of the bedside ta table and tapped it like they were tapping out a cigarette. I saw the person then stub it and go back to sleep. I've had family members who had to move into another bedroom because the person with the Lewy body dementia was dreaming that they were fighting somebody off and they sat up and punched their bed partner. So this acting out of dreams can be that serious and violent and it is a hallmark of dementia with Lewy bodies. So to recap, if you have the movement problems and the Parkinson's disease first, and then you'd present with cognitive problems, that's Parkinson's disease dementia. With Lewy body, you present with the cognitive problems initially, and then start with movement problems later on in the trajectory of the disease. Hallucinations can also be a big problem with both. And in future podcasts, I will dive deeper. But the whole purpose here is to give you an overview. Finally, two or more dementias can occur in the same person. Anybody could have Alzheimer's disease and something else. Parkinson's disease and Lewy body dementia could also co-occur with vascular dementia, especially if the person has a long-standing history of heart disease and high cholesterol. It is actually not uncommon in Parkinson's disease dementia to also have Alzheimer's disease coexist. There's a lot of research being done in these areas, and this information will continue to evolve. But the bottom line is the presence of two or more dementias can make, not only make the diagnosis difficult, but can it can be rather unnerving when one is trying to care for somebody with dementia and the behaviors are really not making sense. So that's something to to think about and I'll discuss in future podcasts. I realize this was a really long podcast. The future ones are not as long. And thank you for listening. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your Bee, 
or email me info at makedementiayourbitch.com. <laughs>